Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In January 1955, the Hollywood Confidential story had just hit newsstands. It said Desi was with sex workers. It was a bombshell, the kind of public humiliation Lucy hated. Well, I'm sick and tired of the whole thing. It seems to me you're just sick of me. You just don't like our whole marriage. Well, maybe I don't. What makes you think I do? Only a few months later, Lucy and Desi started filming a new movie together called Forever Darling, about a couple in the throes of a marital crisis. And you snore. And you you suck your teeth all the time. Mm, mm, mm. And you talk with your mouth full. It was an interesting choice for two people whose own marriage had been quietly falling apart for years. I think I'll scream. Go ahead and scream. I will not. While promoting the movie, Lucy and Desi put on a happy face. Forever Darling is a real plug for matrimony. You see, it's a story about two people that find complete happiness and understanding in marriage. Am I right, honey? That's right. I love the picture. I even love the producer. That's what I like. Lucy hated the picture. Critics and audiences didn't care for it either. It was a romantic fantasy about a guardian angel who helps the couple find their way back to each other. You and Larry are drifting apart. You're going one way, Larry's going another. And one thing leads to another until two people who really belong together are separated for good. Lucy later told Rolling Stone she hoped the movie would do the same for her and Desi, that it might be the miracle that could save her own marriage. Forever Darling had a happy ending. But Lucy and Desi, well, that's a different story. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is Season 3 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, we're telling the story of how Lucille Ball became the funniest, most recognizable woman in America. This is Episode 8, The End of Desilu. Desi and Lucy were at a crossroads. They'd been married 14 years. A few months before they started filming Forever Darling, they had one of the most important conversations of their entire marriage. Here's how Desi remembered it in his memoir, read by an actor. Lucy and I had a long talk about our future. I told her, we have two alternatives. We can sell four years of the I Love Lucy shows we have done for Philip Morris for at least $3 million, I am sure. After we give Uncle Sam his cut, we'll invest the rest safely and conservatively, which should bring us at least $150,000 a year in income without touching the capital. They could cash out and live comfortably for the rest of their lives, spend more time with the kids, teach them to fish and ride horses. Lucy had thought about a quieter life. At around the same time, she wrote to a high school friend in Jamestown, said she and Desi were thinking about retiring to a house on Lake Chautauqua, not far from where Lucy grew up. Nostalgia for her hometown always tugged at Lucy, but her ambition pulled her in another direction. She told Desi, You said we had two alternatives. What is the other one? She asked. I hate to even consider it. 
We must get to be as big as MGM, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, Paramount, Columbia, or any of the other big studios. It was go big or go home. Desilu would eventually go big, really big. But first, Lucy went home. Hi. Hi. We're back to tell you about the new MGM movie that Desi and I just made. It's called Forever Darling. In 1956, Lucy and Desi went on tour to promote Forever Darling. It'll be coming to your favorite theater very soon. As a matter of fact, we're having the world premiere tomorrow night in Jamestown, New York. That's my hometown. Lucy hadn't been back to Jamestown in 10 years. Now she was bringing her husband home for the very first time. Lucy and Desi flew into Jamestown on a helicopter. That was pretty exotic in 1956. And dramatic. 250 students stood in formation on the high school football field. They formed the words, Hi Lucy Desi. A radio reporter from ABC News was there as the high school band played. Desi waving to the crowd and Lucy coming behind him. It's just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my whole life. Thank you and God bless Jamestown for everything. Thank you very much, Lucille. Let's see if we can get a hold of the homecoming queen. A 20 year old woman was behind Lucy. Her name was Janice Swanson. She looked like she belonged on the cover of Seventeen magazine. Janice was elected Miss Jamestown. She'd won the honor of greeting Lucy and Desi in a contest. The reporter asked Janice what she thought of Lucy and Desi. Has been that, 25,000 people lined the streets for a parade. That was half the people who lived in Jamestown. There was a marching band. It rained, and there was a sea of umbrellas. Desi stood on the back of a fire truck wrapped in a thick overcoat. He was wearing a fedora. A cigarette dangled from his lips. Lucy was in the back seat of a car. A photographer from Look Magazine captured the moment. And Lucille Ball is looking out the window, and there are several ladies there amidst thousands to greet her. That's Chris Olson. Janice Swanson, Miss Jamestown, is his mom. And you see a very tentative Lucy. And she knows everyone loves Lucy, the movie star. But she does not yet herself know what does her hometown feel of her. Chris wrote the book Lucy Comes Home about the two days Lucy spent in Jamestown. Chris talked about the photograph he chose for the cover. She's waving, and I kind of picture her saying, I'm home. Hello, I'm home. It's me. It must have been a strange moment for Lucy, seeing herself through the eyes of the people that knew her before fame and fortune. There was a big shindig in the crystal ballroom at the Jamestown Hotel that night. Lucy wore a white gown with sequins. The room was packed. When Janice Swanson was crowned Miss Jamestown, Desi placed a tiara on her head, and he kissed her. There's a photo of that kiss. Desi's head is turned sideways. His eyes are closed, and he's cradling Janice's chin. If you saw that picture without any explanation, you'd say those two were in love. But the people who were there that night saw something else. Janice is in her 80s now. She's told that story to her son, Chris, over the years. She said it was obvious to everyone. It was Lucy and Desi who were in love. And they would still find themselves across a packed ballroom by standing on top of a table and mouthing, Are you okay, Desi? Yeah, I'm good. Are you okay, honey? And that touched mom and really resonated with me on how much they loved each other. The next day, Lucy and Desi visited Lucy's childhood home in Celeron. Look Magazine tagged along. The house was smaller than she remembered. She ran her hand over the curtain rod in the living room, where she and Freddie and Cleo used to stage their shows. This is the room where I used to dream, she said. That night, Lucy and Desi boarded a train for New York to finish the promotional tour. It was the last time Lucille Ball would ever see Jamestown. Lucy's home was now in Hollywood, 
1000 North Roxbury Drive, the house Lucy and Desi bought in Beverly Hills after they left the ranch. It was a five-bedroom mansion with a grand winding staircase. They had staff, maids, cooks, drivers, security guards. It was the kind of place you buy when you're famous. Jimmy Stewart lived down the block. So did Ira Gershwin and Rosemary Clooney. But every now and then, Lucy was reminded of where she came from, like the time Jack Benny showed up in her kitchen. And then she told the story about Jack Benny, who did live next door. Remember, Lucy had gone to see Jack Benny's radio show before she worked in television. Benny taught her how to use her face to make people laugh. Here's Lucy's secretary, Wanda Clark. So one night, the family was at dinner, the kids were still young and at home. I wasn't there. I wish I had been. Jack came across that driveway, came in the back door through the kitchen and the dining room playing his fiddle. Walked around the dining room a couple of times and Lucy was falling on the floor. She was laughing so hard. (laughs) He never broke character. He walked out the kitchen door and went back home without saying a word, just played his fiddle while they were having dinner. That's a great story. Oh, it is a great story. The house on North Roxbury Drive was proof Lucy had arrived. And when Desi asked Lucy to choose, quit the business, or grow Desi Lou into a Hollywood powerhouse, her answer was clear. And Lucy said, I want to keep going. So that was another point where she chose career over marriage. That's Tom Gilbert. He wrote a book about Desi Lou. She was driven and she was focused and single minded. In in a lot of ways, she did not like not working. That's what gave her purpose. More than the kids and more than the marriage. You know, it was the working. Some people bring their work home with them. Lucy and Desi, they brought home to work. Whenever they filmed an episode of I Love Lucy, both of their mothers were usually sitting in the audience. The people who worked at Desilu often said it felt more like a family than a job. Desi even hired one of his childhood friends, Marco Riso, to be the show's pianist. Marco would play during rehearsals. Sometimes Lucy would come by and make requests. One song in particular called, I Didn't Know What Time It Was. It was a special song for Lucy and Desi, the one her character sang in Too Many Girls, that first movie they made together, the reason they met in the first place. When Desi would hear Marco play those opening bars, he'd drop whatever he was doing and race across the soundstage so he could sing it to Lucy. There was a lot of uh, those kind of moments. They were both very nostalgic and very romantic. They were the love of each other's life, you know. Keith Thibodeau was the actor who played Little Ricky on I Love Lucy. I identified more with Desi than I did with Lucy because he was a musician. He was uh, from Cuba. He had a different accent, you know, and I came from a South Louisiana Cajun family. I felt, you know, comfortable around him. But for every tender moment on the set, little Keith Thibodeau also saw Lucy and Desi fight at work. They were both intense individuals, but 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 the marital difficulties uh were something that was very, very hard for them as well as the people on the set. Desi's drinking escalated around 1955. He'd always been something of a drinker. You know, I mean, he was in in nightclubs his whole career, usually, you know, when he worked as a band leader. So it was easy access. But it began to show up at the the job. Um, And... There were little telltale signs. Well, um, it got bad. Maury Thompson was now the camera coordinator on I Love Lucy. He talked about Desi's drinking with PBS. 10 o'clock in the morning, he would ask for some tomato soup. And it was loaded with vodka, you know, just loaded. A couple of sips of it and he's gone. He's gone. And... uh, staggering, going to sleep. Just the worst, the worst. And we had to put up with it. We had to put up with it. 
And when it got that bad, you just couldn't work with him. One time, about the middle of the night, about 11.30 or so, we heard all this commotion, and uh, Desi had been drinking, and um, I guess got word that this tutor had called Desi Jr. a spoiled brat. Keith Thibodeau would often spend the night at Lucy and Desi's because he was friends with Desi Jr. And over the years, Keith saw Desi lose his temper a lot. And he really laid into this guy. I mean, literally, physically was beating him up, knocked him out of the house, I mean, down the stairs, and just just cussing. I mean, here, here we are in our bedroom. And, you know, of course, his kids, it's like, what in the world's going on? You know, it's like somebody's dying out there. Desi and I were both shaking and trembling. And um, Desi came up there, and he just hugged both of us and said, I'm sorry, partners. Desi was a volatile kind of guy, especially if he was drinking. I was very sensitive to that as a child. Um, and that maybe contributed to some of the things that I... I experienced on the set, uh, such as uh, I, sh- I began to stutter during one point during the, uh, the filming of the, of the show. And um, Lucy um, told my father that I needed some time off. So I took some time off. Lucy worried for Keith and for her own children. Right before the family was scheduled to move into the new house in Beverly Hills, a pipe burst. It left water stains all over the white carpet and the freshly plastered walls. Desi lost it. He stormed around the house, kicking the walls, and then he started tearing them down with his bare hands, all in front of the kids. Desi always had a temper, but what Lucy saw that time was something new. It was rage. The pressure on Desi was growing. Desilu had agreed to make 52 more episodes of the I Love Lucy show. They were also making more than a dozen other shows. You have a date with the angel. Our Miss Brooks. The real McCoy. Those fighting girls. Make room for Daddy. In all, Desilu filmed more than 350 hours of television between 1955 and 1957 much of it overseen by Desi. And he was still appearing every week as Ricky Ricardo on I Love Lucy. Desi had been diagnosed with an intestinal infection called diverticulitis. Doctors told him to slow down. In 1957, the couple tried to make some changes. Here's Tom Gilbert again. After the kids got to be a certain age they decided to discontinue the half-hour show, and it was still in the tops in the ratings because they wanted more time to be with the family. Desi convinced CBS to replace I Love Lucy with five hour-long specials. The new Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz Show. They'd rename it the Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz Show, but keep the same cast. They invited their famous friends to be guest stars, everyone from gossip columnist Hedda Hopper to the actress and pinup girl, Betty Grable. But one guest star was more memorable than most. Oh, how do you do, darling? I hate to bother you like this, but could I use your telephone? I'm your new neighbor, Tallulah Bankhead. Of course, Miss Bankhead. I wouldn't know you. Tallulah Bankhead had been a big Broadway star in the 1940s. She was not Lucy's first choice to appear on this particular episode, called The Celebrity Next Door. Lucy wanted Betty Davis... Tallulah Bankhead was a wild card, a heavy drinker and a chain smoker. Bankhead was also erratic. Once, she jumped into a hotel pool fully clothed in a beaded ball gown. She was known for doing cartwheels every chance she got, and she had a reputation for never wearing underwear. She had a wonderful way about her, but you had to be ready. And we weren't quite ready. Bankhead was only on set for a few days, but she managed to frustrate everyone on the crew. One day, she tore off her pants and plopped down cross-legged on the floor of Desi's office in the middle of a meeting. Someone finally covered her with a dressing gown. 
She seemed drunk and out of it at rehearsals. Lucy was irritated. She was dead serious about her comedy. They'd spent three months working on a script, and Tallulah Bankhead couldn't be bothered to learn her lines. She never could remember them. She never quite made it. She'd always go back and say, oh, and she'd go get the script. And she'd read it. I'm never going to read it. I'm never going to never gonna learn that goddamn thing. <laughs> terrible, terrible speech. I said, well, you want us to change it? No, no, no. Leave it alone, darling. It's going to be all right. When the time came to shoot, Lucy was convinced it was going to be a disaster. And I was a wreck because she wasn't going to make it. And by this time, we've thrown away the scripts. Everybody's supposed to know their, their lines and everything. And she'd come to her and said, oh, Christ. And she'd walk away and said, darling, I don't know what's going to happen. So, all right, now comes the show. And I got my own problems to think about. Suddenly, we are up to the scene. And I go, oh, my God, here it comes. So I'm like this. Forgot my lines, and she went right over the top. <laughs> I couldn't remember a line worrying about her. She was so great, and she turned to me in front of the audience and said, What's the matter, darling? Can't you remember your lines? In the actual performance, when the camera would roll, she was, like, fantastic. I mean, she, was, she met Lucy line for line. And actually overwhelmed Lucy in her big fight episode, which pissed Lucy off. And another thing, you do a revolting imitation of me. Because Tallulah, you know, rose to her full height. <laughs> in the episode, Bankhead winds up starring in a PTA production of an old-timey play called The Queen's Lament. Ricky Ricardo plays an English nobleman who tries to woo her. Lucy didn't know it, but while she was doing battle with Bankhead, Desi was cooking up a plan to buy RKO, the very movie studio where he and Lucy first met 17 years earlier. During breaks in the show, Desi was working the phone. RKO was a B-grade motion picture studio. You know, the, the big ones were Warner Brothers and MGM. Anyway, RKO fell into hard times. It, was, it changed hands. Howard Hughes owned it first. Then it was sold to General Tire Company. And General Tire Company, you know, which specialized in tires, really had no business making movies and found that out very quickly. So they, they wanted to unload it. Desi heard that General Tire was asking $6.5 million for RKO's two Hollywood lots, including everything on them. The cameras, the sets, the props, all of it. It was a steal. It would take everything Lucy and Desi had, plus another couple of million, but buying RKO would make Desi Lou a major player in Hollywood, even bigger than MGM and 20th Century Fox. It was a gamble, and just the kind Desi lived for. He called Howard Hughes for advice. Hughes told him to grab it. Desi called the bank and secured a $2 million loan. Desi was still in costume in his velvet breeches and feathered hat when he called the head honcho at RKO. He offered him just over $6 million. That was less than the asking price. I think you just blew it, he said. But I'll present your offer and call you right back. I waited with my silly Shakespearean costume. We still had to do the second act. Lucy came in and said... Come on, what are you doing? We're waiting for you. Just then, the phone rang. It was Dan who said, You got it. Lucy asked, What the hell was that all about? We just bought RKO Studios. We did what? We bought RKO Studios. Desi and the executives explained the deal to Lucy. They took her in and they told her what the story was and that, you know, they were going to buy this huge studio and that everything was going to be sacrificed, you know, if it didn't succeed. And she said, well, what do you guys think? And they all said, let's do it. You know, the, the executives thought it was a good idea. 
And it really wasn't, there was no choice for Desilu. I mean, it had to go forward. So she said, okay, I'm going to do it. And she went back and continued rehearsing. Lucy and Desi now owned the studio that gave them their first big break. There was a rumor going around that back in the early days at RKO, Lucy sauntered onto the lot and said, someday I'm going to own this studio. Lucy denied she ever said that. Can you imagine, can you imagine being 20 years old and walking in to a studio as a starlet, a stupid starlet, getting $50 a week as a model and saying, someday I'll own all this. Isn't that ridiculous? Some son of a bitch wrote that and it sticks. By buying RKO, Desilu had reached the top of the mountain. But Desi and Lucy were facing a long downhill slide. We'll be right back. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Someone told me about a marvelous man that was making life a lot easier for millions of people. And at that time, I needed something to make my life a little easier. And I went looking for this man. And I found him. I went into his audience and I listened to him. And then I asked to meet him. I went backstage. And I've been in love ever since. That man was Norman Vincent Peale. Peel was a minister from Ohio, a rising star in the growing self-help movement of the 1950s. He'd written a book, a bestseller, called The Power of Positive Thinking. Positive thinking works wonders. Peel was known for self-confident mottos like, expect great things and great things will come. Psychologists, though, were skeptical of Peel's methods, even called him dangerous, a con man. But that didn't keep the rich and powerful from going to him for help. Peel would go on to advise presidents, Nixon, Reagan. Few Americans have contributed so much to the personal happiness of their fellow citizens as Dr. Norman Vincent Peel. Even Donald Trump. Norman Vincent Peel, the great Norman Vincent Peel was my pastor. He was so great. Lucy first met Peel when she was 42 years old. The two of them told the story to journalist David Frost. Well, I want to tell you, David, uh, this time that she refers to as coming backstage, uh, it was in the church, actually, and she came back into my office. And uh, we had a nice little chat. And then she did a very strange thing. She got up and started pacing the floor and started to cry. And I asked her, what in the world are you crying about? And uh, we'd been talking prior to that about her great career. She'd come into a magnificent popularity such as she has today and always has. And uh, I asked her what she's crying about. And she said, uh, I'm crying because I'm afraid it won't last. It was the happiness that I had at that point. The point that, yeah, well, that's right. I remember that. But the point is, she has never known that she's a star in her own heart. She doesn't never know that. Everybody else knows it, but she thinks she just playing it. Lucy once told a reporter for the Associated Press that success sometimes scared her. She worried that all the good things in her life would suddenly vanish, even her own children. So in 1957, the same year Desi and Lucy bought RKO, Peel introduced Lucy to his business partner. Smiley Blanton was a well-known psychiatrist in New York. Lucy described him as a frail man who spoke in a whisper. That fall, Lucy went to New York and spent two or three hours a day on Blanton's couch. 
She even convinced Desi to fly out and join a few sessions. One of them lasted from nine in the morning until six at night. They yelled, they kicked over the furniture, they threw pillows at each other. They laughed, too. Lucy felt great about it. As anxious as she was, Desi was worse. She'd begun to see that he was a self-sabotager. He needed to punish himself. Desi was a very hard-working, brilliant, generous, overly generous man. But he had a drinking problem and a self-destruct. And it happened in business even before it happened with us. There are a lot of people that are gamblers and brilliant, but if they drink and they self-destruct, that's the way they are. But maybe through therapy, Desi was facing his issues head on. It didn't stick, though. Desi went back to Hollywood. Lucy stayed in New York another month. She hung on to what Norman Vincent Peale had taught her for the rest of her life, and one mantra in particular. The thing that he finally got through to me was... Uh, uh, one sentence. He said, use this and use it until you learn the meaning of it. It's very fundamental and it starts like a, it's a childish thing. Put a sign up so that you see it first thing in the morning. Is this good for Lucy? The Desilu Playhouse proudly presents another distinguished production. This show is all about one of Lucy's dreams. One that actually did come true. These are the streets of the Desilu studio in Hollywood. The first thing Lucy did when they got the keys to the RKO lot was remodel a bungalow. It had been Ginger Rogers' dressing room back in the studio's glory days. Now it was Lucy's. And she renovated the old little theater to turn it into a workshop for young actors, just like Ginger's mother, Leela, had done for Lucy when she was starting out. Lucy recruited and mentored a group of young actors who would star in a variety show called the Desilu Review. She called them the kids. And listen, honey, don't forget to tell her that the reason for the workshop is to give these kids a place to show off their talent. Tell her but that's how I actually met her. One of those kids was TCM's own Robert Osborne, who later became Lucy's close friend. I came into her life at a wonderful time for me because it was at a time when Desi was not around a lot. I think also when you're in a domestic situation and your partner is straying. And part of the reason you may think is because you're getting a little older. That's a very vulnerable age when you're used to being young and you may not think you're so young anymore. So what you really want to be around is younger people to make you feel young. While Lucy was running the workshop, Desi had just landed one of the biggest contracts ever negotiated for television, a huge sponsorship deal with Westinghouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're going to see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse launched a few hits, including a show from a young writer named Rod Serling that would eventually become the Twilight Zone. You may have heard of it. On a quiet street in Oak Park, Illinois... Then there was The Untouchables about Elliot Ness, the federal agent who took down Al Capone. Neville Brand played Capone. I'm away for ten months, and we got a problem with his, um... Ness. A Ness, a Ness, Ness. At first, Desi thought of casting himself as Ness, but then decided to give the role to Robert Stack. The public did their part and stayed away from those joints. They save a lot more than tax money. There'd be no syndicate and a lot less criminal activity. The Capone family and Desi's old high school buddy, Sonny Capone, actually sued Desi Lou over the series. But the show was a hit. Things were on an upswing at work. On December 3, 1958, Desi Lou went public. Lucy and Desi each got about $2.5 million from the sale. Lucy invested her share. They still kept separate bank accounts. But most of Desi's earnings went to pay off his debts. I think it was the third hour of the Lucy-Desi comedy hour. They shot on location in Las Vegas with Fred McMurray. And Desi got heavily into gambling. And so they were trying to get him out of there. So they chartered a plane home. And on the way home... Desi bribed the pilot to turn around and he went back 
went back into the casino and lost $45,000. <laughs> Just it couldn't be stopped. But going public turned up the heat on Desi. As Desi Lou became more and more important and bigger, it was a lot of pressure on Desi, and especially when they had shareholders, because then you really have to be on your toes and you're easily called on the carpet. Desi had become a liability at work and at home. To Lucy, even an embarrassment. But I wouldn't go out with him to a party or anything because he he was incapable. So I stayed home. That's lousy. No, it was all right. It was better than being at a party with him. <laughs> That's Lucy talking to reporter Dotson Rader in 1984. Rader remembers a story Lucy told him about her marriage. She said the point where it just got to be too much is he would pick up women at their at parties they would have at their house and take them up into their bedroom, then have sex with them in, the, in her bed. And, uh, and she said, you'll fuck him in the maid's room or something, but don't use our bedroom. I was kind of surprised when she told me that because I, you know, you sort of have this image of the two, you know, having a sort of wonderful marriage. And, you know, I kind of felt sorry for her, actually. There's a point at which you can't take the pain anymore, right? There's a word Lucy used over and over again to describe how Desi's cheating, his very public cheating, made her feel humiliated. She wanted to retaliate, humiliate Desi right back. When they went to Palm Springs, Lucy would go to Desi's favorite bar. She'd try to catch him cheating. Once, she raced across a golf course with Maury Thompson bouncing along in the cart to confront Desi with another woman. Thompson says Lucy really did love Desi, but she was just so hurt. She just couldn't hold back, embarrassing him in front of people. He stooped over once and she kicked him and she meant to kick him higher, but she didn't and she kicked him lower and the poor man just folded and he limped around for days. Just days. It was awful. Anyone who knows what it's like when a relationship is ending will recognize some version of this. Those moments of cruelty between people who once loved each other, who may still love each other, but just can't make it work. The cruelty looks different in each marriage, each relationship, but it's almost always there. And it's as powerful an impulse as falling in love. Plot Thickens will return in just a moment. Sometime in the mid-1950s, Desi Arnaz sat down and wrote a note. It's dated April 20th. It's not clear exactly what year. It's written in what looks like pencil on two pages of lined paper torn from a spiral-bound notebook. It's addressed to no one. Desi's handwriting seems to grow more urgent as the letter goes on. It says, I've come to the terrible realization that my wife doesn't love me. She loves her children, her mother, her family. As far as I'm concerned, if I behave well, I'm a nice guy to have around. But there's no love. She can't forgive me anything. And the reason why she can't forgive me anything is because she really doesn't love me. I have a sick feeling in my stomach. I've had this feeling before, during the Cuban Revolution, during Lucy's commie accusation, and now. The other two times, there was something you could fight. But you can't fight this, Desi wrote. The woman does not love me. I think they did love each other. I don't think they always knew how to express it in a way that either could understand. That's Kathleen Brady, Lucy's biographer, speaking to PBS. I asked Lucille Ball, in fact, do you think Desi ever loved you? 
And she said, yes. He loved me when we were first married. He loved me when we bought our first house and we planted our garden. And I was very, very touched by that. I think he loved her, but knowing how much pain, sorrow, anger, and hatefulness they put each other through, I find it hard to process this great love story business. A lot depends on how you define love. It was a story of a remarkable, passionate partnership. In the spring of 1959, Lucy and Desi made one final attempt to revive their marriage. They booked a vacation. The couple set sail on a French ocean liner. But instead of a romantic getaway, Lucy brought an entourage. They had taken a European trip to try to mend the marriage. They took the kids. They took cousin Cleo and they took Cleo's husband, Kenny. When they got to London, everything was fine because London had the show and knew Lucy and Desi. Then they went to Paris. Not so much did they know him. Then they got to Rome, and a coat had been left behind in Paris. It was his coat. It was forwarded to Rome, and it was addressed to Mr. Ball. And that's when Desi went off. And according to Cleo, he wasn't sober from that moment on. Desi got drunk in Capri. He tripped on the cobblestones and smashed his face. Cleo said he looked like a pomegranate, purple with bruises. It was a disaster. When they got back, Desi would stay in the guest house on Roxbury Drive where they lived. But largely, they were separated. Keith Thibodeau, who played Little Ricky, remembers those days too and what it was like for Lucy and Desi's kids. I just felt bad for Lucy and Desi because their mom and dad were not happy together. We were, um, we were playing in the backyard. Desi was, at that point, staying in the guest house, and there was glass crashing and cursing and all this rumblings going on in there. And we could hear it from in the backyard. And uh, we, we were just kind of like huddling in the bushes in the, by a tree, by a wall, and, and just looked at one another and, you know, just said, there they go again. And during this period, Lucy would go back and forth to New York a bit. And one time she was in New York and she called Cleo and she said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And Cleo said, well, you have to get your priorities straight. You know, what do you want? Do you want your marriage or do you want your career? And Lucy said, my career. So that was the end of it. Back at the studio, Lucy and Desi still had a couple of episodes left to film to fulfill their contract with Westinghouse. In The Ricardos Go to Japan, Lucy and Ethel dress up as geishas in a scene that doesn't play quite the same way now as it did in 1959. Miko now, geisha girl take coffee break. I can tea break. Between takes, Lucy was crying through her pancake makeup. Well, when Lucy was unhappy, everybody was unhappy, you know. When the marriage was on the rocks, everybody felt it. So, you know, Desi would say, that, tell Miss Ball to move over there. And she would say, tell Mr. Arnez, you know, I'm not going to do that. They weren't speaking, just weren't speaking to each other. You could just tell he was miserable, just miserable. And then you knew things were happening at home that weren't happy. So it was a dreadful, dreadful ending Soon after that episode wrapped, Lucy and Desi had an explosive fight in Desi's office. Desi asked for a divorce. Here's how he remembered it in his book. She didn't even answer. She just turned her back to me and left. When I got home that night, she said, You meant what you said? Yes, I am very sorry, but I did. I cannot keep on living this way. Her temper got the best of her. 
Why don't you die then? That would be a better solution, better for the children, better for everybody. I'm sorry, but dying is not on my immediate schedule. I'll tell you something, you bastard. You cheat, you drunken bum. I got enough on you to hang you. By the time I get through with you, you'll be as broke as when you got here. You goddamn spick, you, you, you wetback. Desi moved out. They never lived together under the same roof again. Lucy and Ricky Ricardo said goodbye forever in January of 1960. The episode was called Lucy Meets the Mustache. Honest, honey, I was only trying to help. Look, Lucy. Uh, Lucy was wearing striped pajamas, a hat, and a big mustache. It was supposed to be funny, but she kept breaking down in tears. At the end, Ricky takes Lucy in his arms for a scene where they kiss and make up. This was not just an ordinary kiss for a scene in a show. It was a kiss that would wrap up 20 years of love and friendship. Triumphs and failures, ecstasy and sex, jealousy and regrets, heartbreaks and laughter, and tears. The only thing we were not able to hide was the tears. The kiss lingered. It was poignant, and I think everybody realized that that kiss summed up, you know, all those years together. After the kiss, we just stood there looking at each other and licking the salt. Then Lucy said, You're supposed to say cut. I know. Cut, goddammit. Desi ends his autobiography there in 1960. His life went on for more than 25 years after Lucy, but it seems telling that he chose to end his life story on that day. Two months later, Lucy filed for divorce, for real this time. Desi was served with papers on March 3, 1960, the day after his 43rd birthday. Lucy was chipper when she got out of the limo at the Santa Monica courthouse for her divorce hearing a few months later. She wore a black-and-white checked suit and carried a jeweled umbrella. She joked with reporters. But inside the courtroom, she was teary-eyed. She told the judge about Desi's temper. It was a Jekyll and Hyde thing, she said, and it embarrassed her. When fans heard news of the divorce, it felt personal. It was dismay is the only thing I can think of to say. It was like, they were so good together, so funny, what's wrong, what happened? Nobody understood it. I think she got 8,000 letters saying, don't do it, but what can you do? It was a, you know, it was a national event. Even a representative from the Catholic Church called Lucy and asked her to reconsider. She told reporters at the courthouse there would be no reconciliation this time. Lucy knew the marriage had to end, but she never understood how it all fell apart. Here's Lucy talking to Barbara Walters in 1977. You had the success. The marriage looked perfect. It was everything. And then it fell apart. That was his problem. And I heard you were devastated. I couldn't understand it any more than, you know, for the same reason you're asking the question. It seemed like we had everything. I think people still don't understand I don't either. Lucy called it the lowest point in her life. I think the one thing she wanted more than anything in the world was to be able to work, be financially secure, and be with the one man that she loved. And that didn't happen. Lucy grieved. The dream of a quiet life on Lake Chautauqua. The happy, peaceful home she wanted so badly for her kids. She grieved all of it. Desi could never be the husband Lucy needed. You can hear some of that disappointment in her voice when Jean Shallot interviewed her on the Today Show in 1979. Her daughter, Lucy Arnaz, little Lucy, sat next to her on the couch. What do you hope for your daughter for her future? I hope that she finds uh, a man who appreciates his home and really, really means it really wants to be in it, and someone who cares 
about the closeness and is not always looking into the tomorrow. The grass is always greener over there someplace and appreciates what they have. Lucy Arnaz did find a man who appreciated her, an actor named Larry Luckinbill. And her father sang a song at the wedding. The title song from Forever Darling, the last movie Desi and Lucy ever filmed together. There were a few dozen people at the wedding, but some suspected Desi was singing it for an audience of one. I'll be your true love forever and forever. I'll care for you eternally. Next time on The Plot Thickens, I go to Palm Springs to talk to Lucy Arnaz. I remember being devastated. I really do. I remember being quite devastated. Cried my eyes out. I can remember exactly where I was sitting on the carpet. I remember that my dad called right after that. And I picked up the phone and I just cried and I cried and I cried and he cried. And he tried to make me feel better. I think he said something like, give him a chance. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editor and creative consultant is Joanne Ferrion. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris and his exceptional ears. Script writing by Angela Carone, Yako Friedman, Dale Maharaj, Maya Croth, and Joanne Ferrion. Yako Friedman is our senior producer. Associate production from Josh Lash. Additional editing and sound design by Paul Robert Mounsey and Heather Frankel. Additional script editing by Brian Erstadt and Susan White. James Sheridan is our researcher, fact checker, and resident Lucy expert. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Jordan Bogey, Bailey Tyler, Allison Fire, Julie Baton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Wendy Gardner, Taryn Jacobs, Diana Bosch, and the entire TCM marketing team. Thank you to Dotson Raider, whose interview with Lucy is heard throughout this podcast. The excerpts from the audiobook version of Desi Arnaz's memoir were read by Juan Pablo de Pache. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Lucille Ball's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.